Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guests today are Justin Tosi, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Texas Tech University, and Brandon Warmke, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. Their new book is Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. What is grandstanding? Well, if you wanted to kind of like the simplest bumper sticker description of grandstanding, uh, grandstanding is the use of public discourse for self-promotion. Grandstanders engage in discussions about politics and morality uh, to try to impress people with how good they are, to seek social status. Um, and so, you know, a bit more detailed, you know, we give this account in the book that's a very simple account of grandstanding. It just has two parts. Grandstanders uh, say something in public discourse. They make a claim about morality or politics or about themselves. Um, and that's motivated what they're saying. We call that what they say, the, the grandstanding expression. And that's motivated by a strong desire for moral recognition. We, we, we call this the recognition desire. And that desire could be all kinds of different things. You might have a general desire to just people have people think well of you. You might have a specific desire for people to think that you care deeply about the poor or about family values. But whatever that desire is, um, it, it's, it's motivating primarily what you say. So lots of our motivations are complex, but what grandstanders are really out for, what they really care about is people coming away thinking that there's something morally special. It seems weird to me because, well, I mean, on some level it's obvious, and I've thought about this before, that so you, there's, it's like there's two choices or there's two possibilities here where you you can be moral, like you, whatever moral theory you have, you can be moral and you can seem moral. And those don't actually have to be the same thing. It, it, it might be true that what is the actual moral truth doesn't look moral to anyone else. And so you look like a bad guy, but you are being objectively a good guy. Or, of course, the inverse could be true. But it seems you know, not that surprising that people would want those things to line up, that they both seem to be moral and that they are doing moral. So, what, so is that bad to grandstand and try and portray that? Well, uh, so the thing about – trying to come across as being a morally good person uh, is that your behavior or what you say uh, will shift in ways that you might not expect. So you might think, you know, going into a conversation, um, you know, look, uh, I just have like this, this warehouse of things that I believe in, in my head and, you know, they're talking about X. So I'll just go to the shelf with, you know, X uh, on it and pull out my, my belief about X. Um, but that's not quite how it works, uh, actually. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, if you're out to show people that you're good and, and maybe to stand out in your group, what you'll do uh, is to subtly shift uh, the substance of, of your view or at least your expression of it uh, in order to seem especially good or to make it really clear that you're good. So what you'll often see people doing uh, is they will gradually adopt more and more extreme positions uh, in, in a conversation. So they might engage in what we call ramping up. So they'll adopt uh, uh, a view or express a view that's a little bit more extreme maybe than, than the last person who spoke. And, you know, this is how we end up going in, in you know, a matter of 48 hours uh, from, I think, you, you know, we should defund the police to abolish the police entirely uh, because, you know, people are trying uh, to stand out as, as seeing, you know, uh, as seeming especially against police brutality, for instance. In moral theory, we can, when we're assessing a, a moral agent, we can, on the one hand, assess their actions um, that, you know, what's morally right or wrong is based on what they actually do in the world and the consequences or whatever other criteria we have. And on the other side, we might assess their motivations. And it seems like the grandstanding, this theory sits somewhere in the middle or or straddles them because on the one hand, a lot of a lot of the negative things that you describe about it, the reasons that it's like we shouldn't be doing it, it's bad, the consequences of it are consequences. They're things that happen in the world and we shouldn't be doing that and it's making the world worse and discourse worse and so on. But on the other hand, your definition of grandstanding depends 
deeply on like a subjective requirement that, you know, I have to intend to grandstand. I am trying to use moral talk to promote myself instead of trying to use it for other more laudable things. Is that, is that attention? And, and how does that like subjective side of it mean that we should go about assessing grandstanding or recognizing it in the world if if to really know it depends on like knowledge that exists only in the head of the actor. Yeah. So uh, I'll just say a few things about the moral argument. So over the course of three chapters in the book, we give uh, kind of like a all hands on deck set of moral arguments against grandstanding where the conclusion to all these arguments is that grandstanding is bad and should be avoided. So we have a chapter in which we argue uh, that we think on balance, grandstanding has some pretty serious social consequences. It promotes polarization, cynicism about moral discourse. Uh, it uh, causes outrage, exhaustion. And then we have a chapter in which we argue, uh, setting aside the consequences, we think that grandstanding is just disrespectful. Um, it free rides on other people's uh, conscientious use of public discourse. Um, it can be very deceitful. Um, and also it's, it's manipulative and coercive, um, conscripting people into your morality play to shame them and punish them. I mean, that's just not what morality is for. And then we have a chapter in which we argue for various reasons that a virtuous person wouldn't grandstand that, um, on traditional Aristotelian accounts on, um, uh, uh, virtue consequentialist accounts. And then we have a, a fun kind of section on Nietzsche where we argue that Nietzsche would even argue for for virtue-based reasons that that people shouldn't grandstand. Um, so, so what should we make of all that? Well, compare grandstanding to lying. So lying is another activity or bullshitting or demagoguery or bragging. Lots of these phenomena, discursive phenomena, are essentially defined by, at least in part, by what's in our head. So you don't lie just because you say something false. Um, you lie because you intend or decide to mislead someone. Um, and so grandstanding also has this, you know, as, as you know, Aaron, this sort of, sort of mental aspect that's often not transparent to us. Um, but no one would argue that lying is not wrong. And in fact, worse than simply accidentally perhaps misleading someone. And so there's something sort of really bad about intentionally lying that in, and, and lying has worse consequences, uh, than just saying something false, right? It's a, you might lose, you might lose trust, right? Um, it's an, it's sort of disrespectful in a way that simply getting the facts wrong isn't. And so there's all these things that are bad about lying that are bad in virtue, not just of the consequences, but also bad about <clears throat> what someone's doing, what someone is trying to mislead or deceive. And so grandstanding in a way is, is very similar in this respect. Um, grandstanding is, is a, it's certainly a behavior. It's something we outwardly do, but it also has this interior mental element. And we think that that explains further ways in which it's wrong. Um, so throughout the book, you know, it's, if it's helpful to think about grandstanding along the lines of bullshitting or demagoguery or humble bragging, lying, these are all phenomena that have to essentially refer to mental states. Like the, the point you make about knowing whether someone is grandstanding or not is a, really nice one. And we, this is a, I think for us, and I think for a lot of people, when they first hear about grandstanding, it's a frustrating thing because a lot of people want to say, like they read the book or they hear about the work and they think, okay, give me the, like, give me the test. Like, how do I know that I see grandstanding? And we, we go through in the book, lots of ways that grandstanding appears, you know, what it looks like, you know, maybe some clues for how to determine it. But but there's no foolproof test, just like there's no pr foolproof test for determining whether someone is lying or not. I mean, in controlled studies, humans are not much better than the flip of a coin at determining whether someone is lying to them. And so, you know, for lots of reasons, we go into uh, it's probably not a good idea to just go around trying to identify grandstanding, even though it's bad behavior. We think that um, it's also good. It's going to have bad consequences to go out, go around trying to call people out. Um, so we have some other solutions for how to solve grandstanding. Maybe we can talk about later, but, but you're absolutely right. The grandstanding is just not transparent. It's just not obvious that someone's doing it. I know there are some sort of like 
pretty obvious cases. We discussed the case of Harvey Weinstein in the book after he got caught, you know, talking about how much he cares about women and so on. And that seems pretty transparent grandstanding. Um, but in the main, um, it's a very difficult thing to discern. In a way, that, that's why grandstanding is such a quiet poison, because grandstanders are camouflaging themselves in this moral language, this moral talk. They're sort of uh, treating treating discourse as a way to get what they really want, which is status and impressing other people. But they cloak it in this high-minded moral language that really does hide their true intentions, even if it is successful at getting people to really think they're, they're morally among the angels. It seems that grandstanding is sort of interestingly indexical. Uh, when you were discussing ramping up, I was thinking about my life as a professional libertarian and the fact that in different times in my life, I've been in situations where there were a bunch of libertarians in the room who broadly agreed on things, but sometimes you can get into a situation where they're each trying to be more libertarian than the next one. And I've always said that, <laughs> that, that yeah, there's a famous story of Mises and Friedman and Hayek being at the Mount Pelerin Society. And I can't remember who it was, uh, but at some point, I think Mises was the one who called them a bunch of socialists and walked out of the room because they they thought roads or something were a good idea. Uh, <laughs> and I've watched libertarians like become anarchists over the course of like a conversation, right? Just like you mentioned about police. It's like defund police, abolish police, right? You know, we don't need anything. And I've always said it's like libertarianism is like the vegetarianism of politics where there's no feasible upper limit on human superiority complexes. So vegetarians, uh, then you have people who are vegans who hate on the vegetarians and you have people who are going raw who hate on the vegans and you can keep going down that down that line but it does matter who you're around in some sense who who you are grandstanding to and does do like-minded people gathering together and perhaps only seeing each other's feeds on social media and stuff is is this exacerbating the problem to some extent because they're they're all grandstanding to each other about who's the best pr version of this moral person that they agree on would be a generally moral person yeah, that's great. Um, I, you know, I think one of the the biggest losses of um, you know everyone being in lockdown because of this pandemic is that there was no Libertarian Party convention uh, for this election cycle. Some of those clips from the last one are are pretty great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, um, but, we, we don't. Yeah, that we, we yeah. Unfortunately, yes, that's the image of the party. I agree, it's entertaining. It's a little bit disheartening, <laughs> though. But of course, Cato has nothing to do with the Libertarian Party. No, no, of course. Um, right. So, um, but the point. I mean, the point you make is a great one, right? Of course, it, it depends uh, on who you're around. And, and this is one of the reasons that it's so difficult to detect grandstanding uh, because uh, it's it's just so contextual, right? So the things that um, people uh, say uh, in front of a group of libertarians would mean something very different if, if they said them uh, with, with a very different audience, um, right? So th this is still more support for the idea that um, – that it's not a good, you know, there's just not going to be a foolproof test for, for detecting grandstanding. But let me focus also on, on something else that, that you said, Trevor, uh, about uh, people who are, are kind of like-minded getting together. And, you know, it seems like they, they get in these moral arms races, they, they ramp up, like, like we were saying earlier, um, and they, they end up with these really crazy views. So this is the driving force behind one of um, – maybe the most concerning uh, problem with grandstanding uh, that, that Brandon and I talk about in the book. And that is uh, that it induces, we think, a, a lot of political polarization. Um, so the way this, this works is, you know, you get people talking together about so, some issue um, and, you know, maybe all, all of your, your libertarian friends and, and you might, might think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a really like extreme believer in personal liberty, right? None of these people is, is more extreme than I am about these, you know, this issue or, or whatever yeah, issue we're talking that's, about. That's Murray Rothbard we're just talking about right now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so then like, you know, people start talking and you're like, oh, all right, well, man, these people actually are pr pretty, pretty out there. Uh, <laughs> but still, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm as pure as it gets, right? So if they're saying, you know, things that are crazy to, to like the fifth degree, I've got to, you know, I have to go to the sixth degree. Why not? Right. Um, so this is, this is why we think um, people end up 
uh, in a lot of cases, adopting really extreme views, and, and especially when they get to talking uh, with members of their in-group, because it's easier for them to subtly shift their view about some issue than it is for them to, to see themselves as maybe less morally pure uh, than, uh, than they thought about themselves going in. Yeah. So one of the things we do in the book is we act, we explain the psychological mechanisms that are that are at play here. So as it turns out, decades of research show that many people think that they're morally better than average. I mean, as they conceive of morality, they think that they're morally better than the average person. Um, psychologists call this moral self-enhancement. It's a very strong and robust effect. Um, but we also care about what other people think of us, and and we engage in what psychologists call impression management. So often, we want people to think of us the way that we think of us. So if I think of myself, for example, as caring caring deeply for the poor or caring deeply about the the non aggression principle or something, then then I want I want people to know it, right? I want people to believe those things about me. And one thing we know, we have some good evidence in what Cass Sunstein calls the law of group polarization. So if you get a group of like-minded people together and you have them deliberate, there's this thing called social comparison that happens. And because we think of ourselves largely in relation to how we perceive ourselves in relation to others, it's like I'm not funny like – I'm not funny in lots of areas of my life, but when I go home to my family, I'm like the funniest person there, right? So I think of myself as like really funny. So you might, you might hang out with your, you know, your friends and you think you really care about liberty. And then you go to a, you know, you go to an event with a bunch of libertarians and you're like, holy hell, like these people really care about it. And so you get these like-minded people together and, and there's a, and there's a kind of social comparison. So Aaron says, you know, I really think that we should have this policy. And he looks like he really cares about liberty. So I can either let him have pride of place or I can try to one up him. And because in order to preserve this view of my, my of myself to myself and to others, I have a choice to make. And and often what people do is they get into these iterative discussions about some issue and they come out more extreme than they were. And the problem is, of course, these things are happening in all different kinds of communities. They're happening on the right and the left. And so and we have some empirical evidence for this, too, is that grandstanding is actually causing political polarization. It's actually causing people to push further apart. And so the kind of dynamic, um, the kind of dy dynamic, Trevor, that you have in mind is, is we think one of the most fundamental uh, causes of, of polarization, at least as it occurs in, in conversations. I want to follow up briefly on the empirical question um, at the risk of taking us slightly off topic. In So in the book, you draw a lot, as you said, on empirical research, on specifically psychological studies. And you mentioned that you guys have started working on your own stuff in that area with a another professor. And, and as I was reading it, I was wondering about the replication crisis and how when you're doing empirically grounded, psychologically grounded philosophy, you think about or deal with that. And so for our listeners, this is just the idea that especially in experimental psychology, there's been a growing recognition of a problem that a lot of these studies don't replicate. So if someone else runs the same study again, they either don't find as large of effects or they don't find any effects. Um, and so it calls into question some of the results. And so did you guys how do you approach that when you're building philosophical theories on top of psychological research? Yeah, that's 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 really important. Um, when Justin and I went into the book, we we wanted it to be an empirically supported and grounded book, um, but we were also very much aware of the replication crisis, as as you described. Now, what we did was a few things. One, we tried to draw only from really well established research paradigms and programs in personality and social psychology. Um, we ran the book by four or five uh, professional psychologists, em em empirical psychologists, and, and we ran them by people who really care about replication. Um, and, and so we tried to vet the book by the best standards of personality and social psychology. Um, the other thing we did was um, we didn't rely on any studies that we thought were bad. <laughs> so we read, we actually read the studies, and and sometimes I, I'd want to put something in, and, jo and Justin would say, "No, that that's not that's not a great study," or 
Josh Grubbs, our, our psychologist that, that we work with, um, would say, yeah, maybe steer, steer clear away from that. We don't, we don't, I don't think we cite any studies that, that discuss priming. So a lot of the studies that haven't been replicated are, are priming studies. You, you give someone a stimulus and then you see how they, how they respond in sort of surprising, um, in, in sort of weird ways. We don't engage in any of that. All of our studies are pretty straightforward. All the data that we've collected ourselves is, is high quality data, YouGov data, demographically matched to, um, to the U.S. and huge numbers too. I mean, we've, we've done, I think ourselves, our studies have included 6,000 participants. So now look, all that being said, you know, a hundred years from now, five years from now, maybe some of this stuff is going to be shown to be problematic in various ways, but this is just, you know, this is just part of the, part of the enterprise of trying to, you know, especially for philosophers. I mean, I think philosophers have all these theories and often no data and psychologists have all this data. And I mean, I think one problem that psychologists have had with the replication crisis, they have all this data and they don't have any good theories. They don't have a way to sort of coherently understand what's going on. And so this is sort of self-serving, but I think Justin and I think of ourselves as sort of like bringing these two bringing these two crowds together and, and, and provide a theory that makes sense of all this data. And, 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 you know, yeah, it's, it's at the, at, at the behest of the winds of time and, and, and what science ends up discovering. But I think, I think Justin and I are both pretty confident right now that all of the research programs that we draw on are decades old. And, and as far as we can tell now, they're, they've, um, they've held up under, pretty rich scrutiny. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, we, I mean, we have been just absurd. I think it's fair to say absurdly careful. Now, I mean, that will come back to, to bite me, I'm sure, when someone finds <laughs> I wish you wouldn't <laughs> said there. that. You shouldn't have said that. Oh, well. Yep. Um, but, well, I mean, so one further thing. I mean, look, we have no interest here in, in trying to sneak anything through. Um, one other thing that, that we've done is, uh, I mean, as far as I know, we, we are following all of the new practices for the open science framework. Uh, and, and our colleague, Brandon's colleague, Josh Grubbs, um, you know, when he, uh, before he runs any of these studies, he, he uploads, um, you know, our hypotheses and, and plan analysis and, uh, all of the other things that people are doing now, uh, to the open science framework website. So, you know, uh, I don't, it's probably too much bravado to say we're calling our shots, but, uh, you know, we're being really careful. Now it, it seems to a lot of people, I'm sure that this is a good book for the times given our grand standard chief, maybe to some extent, but also a bunch of people. And during the crisis now and the protests, we're seeing, we're seeing this a lot. Do you guys think that this is different now, or is it, are you just diagnosing something that maybe comes in the sine waves in American history or world history? And maybe we're at the, the top of one or something, or something changed. It's so hard. It's so hard to know, Trevor, when you're in the middle of it, where you're at. Um, you know, Justin and I started writing about grandstanding in 2014. We, we went to grad school together at the University of Arizona. And I just remember vividly one night we were standing in a parking lot of a, of a Mexican restaurant. We, here come the nachos. <laughs> this is an ongoing joke in a very early podcast. <laughs> Justin said I talk about nachos too much, so we were we were no, talking. No, it's, it's fine. It's, it's totally acceptable. It's not possible. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. So we had this. We we just had this sort of like epiphany. We like being on social media. It just seemed like a lot of people were the the moral conversations they were having seemed to be very centered around themselves. A lot of I talk. A lot of me talk. A lot of look at me. Kind of showy preening. And it's, it struck us as something, something kind of new was going on. Um, now, looking back on that conversation in 2014, when we started writing the original paper, from now, it's like quaint. I mean, things have really changed. And I don't think they've changed, all things considered, for the better. Um, I think one, one thing that's happened is that more and more people are online. I, I think the, the, the social, psychological, personality ingredients of grandstanding are, are of sort of as fundamentally human as something could be, you know, like the drives for status, the drive to have other people think well of you in lots of contexts of life. Those are perfectly or mostly innocent desires to have, and even maybe desires to satisfy. Um, but I think that in you know, the fact that these sort of very basic temptations and human drives have been unleashed in a way that I think in no time in human history 
could people have imagined? I mean, a hundred years ago, you, to have a crowd of hundred people listen to what you'd say, you'd have to like own a newspaper or have a radio station or be a, a preacher or a politician or stay on the street corner. Now, I mean, like literally anyone with a phone and a Twitter account can talk to a hundred people. And, and I think it's much easier to satisfy these desires. And I think it's much harder to avoid seeing other people grandstanding. Now, we don't have a grand theory about like the present moment. Like why, why are things so crazy right now? I mean, I think it's a very complex situation having to do with, you know, maybe, maybe it's Trump, maybe it's COVID quarantine, maybe it's a lot of bottled up resentment. I mean, we don't really have a theory about that. Um, uh, but, but I think one thing you are seeing now is people, people using extremely easy access to a soapbox to satisfy very basic human desires and not restraining ourselves when doing so would actually promote healthier norms for public discourse. Just to add, uh, you know, one thing about this, um, a lot of people, I think, uh, well, I know, I know a lot of people think this because since the very first thing Brandon and I did about this, people have been trying to conscript us into the culture wars, uh, and to make this, <laughs> either make this into about an anti- the other side. Yeah. 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 You, you, you wrote um, this about them, right? It's not about us. It's about them. Right. Well, that, or it's an attack on us. Uh, they would say, um, okay. so a lot of people try to turn this into like an anti-left project and it's just not, um, I mean, you know, I, and I don't even need to sort of claim just about our, our motives. I mean, if you think for, for five minutes or, or less about, uh, about the history of, of, how people have abused moral talk. Uh, I mean, what it's, you know, it isn't like the left has just recently started doing this. Think back to the Iraq war. I mean, how many people were shut out of, of the public sphere uh, because they were, were supposedly soft on terror Uh, or think about uh, the moral majority in in the eighties. No end of, of preening. Uh, in in that movement, uh, or think even back to you know the the McCarthy days of, of anti communism. No shortage of moral grandstanding there either. Uh, the other thing about this is one of the things uh, we've been so glad, not at all surprised, but so glad to have revealed by our empirical work is that this is just not a partisan phenomenon. Um, so you know if you look at a graph of who is uh, showing grandstanding grandstanding tendencies, um, who admits to, you know, showing, showing the, the, the profile of a grandstander, according to our, our grandstanding scale that we developed with Josh Grubbs, um, it's like a U-shaped curve, right? So it doesn't tell you anything uh, to know that someone's liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican. Uh, it doesn't tell you whether they're more or less likely to be a grandstander because it's a problem on both sides. Uh, what it does show, however, is that people who have more extreme views uh, are more likely to engage in grandstanding. We think probably because those are the people who are most keen to show that they share the values uh, of their group and maybe even stand out within their group as, as uh, being the most committed to its values. As I was reading the book, and you, you have the section where you talk about the five types of grandstanding, I was struck that most of them, so probably piling on, ramping up, trumping up, and displays of strong emotion at least fit into hyperbole. And and that it, it seems like our culture has, you know, cultural discourse shifts and like the way that people speak shift. Um and and we can go from like periods of ironic understatement to periods of Lots of hyperbole, which seems to be what we're in now. And it's not just in moral, but it's in, you know, headline writing is like, you know, five things every 90s kid will remember and number six will drive you insane. <laughs> or, or you know, yeah. like reaction videos on YouTube where someone watches a movie trailer and just loses it. Yeah. Um, and and so hyperbole seems to be like the coin of the realm at this point in not necessarily a moral way, but just in like that's how we express ourselves. And so – is there potentially a relationship to that, that grandstanding is maybe, or for a lot of people, not not this kind of malicious or deceitful thing, but simply bringing the language of hyperbole into moral talk, like overstating for dramatic effect? Yeah. So let's think about like what, you know, what hyperbole does. How does hyperbole function or exaggeration? Um, you know, one of the things that we would 
argue is that hyperbole and exaggeration, which I, you're absolutely right, that a lot of grandstanding is hyperbole and exaggeration. One thing, one reason grandstanders use it is because it's a way to get attention. Um, uh, you know, this is the most egregious violation of protocol ever. Like we've never had a president do this or you won't believe what the other side did. Like this is the way to get attention. And so if what you're, you know, if one thing that you're after is status, attention, people looking at you, um, people thinking that you are of high prestige, sort of moral exemplar, then one way to get that attention to stand out is simply to be more extreme, to be more hyperbo hyperbolic than everyone else. And so, you know, there, there may be, I guess, I guess I could imagine someone who engages in a hyperbole or exaggeration merely as a kind of instrument to draw attention to what they're saying. So the, the thought would be something like, not all cases of exaggeration or hyperbole or grandstanding, but the thought would be something like, Hyperbole and exaggeration are tools in the grandstanders trade. It's a way to stand out. It's a way to make yourself look, say, for, you know, for example, more incensed than everyone else about this. You know, I remember Obama, we give a couple examples in the book. One of, you know, Obama wore a tan suit once to a press conference when he discussed the Islamic State and he just got pummeled by the right. And then he also... <laughs> He that was also, one of the stupidest moments in politics. That's yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's, and then uh, he also, I think he was exiting Marine One once, and he he had like a coffee, like a Starbucks yeah, cup in his he hand. He saluted with coffee in his hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he saluted a Marine with coffee in his hand, which, you know, it turns out that is a minor breach of protocol. But like, you know, Karl Rove lost his mind. Breitbart was all over it, right? So so here's one thing that could be going on here. So this is clearly exaggeration in, in hyperbole. I mean, but... But what's the, you know, what's Karl Rove doing? Well, one thing he could be doing is saying, look, no one cares more about presidential decorum than this guy, right? That I care more. I mean, I am so incensed by this. And we know from empirical research that, that outrage is a reliable signal of moral conviction. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but the more outraged you get, the more outraged you get, um, the more convicted you are about this moral issue. And so if Carl if Carl Rove is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Obama did this thing, then one thing he could be doing is trying to draw attention to himself as someone who has a very sensitive moral compass. Of course, there are lots of other things he could be doing. I mean, it could just be a cynical ploy to like attack the president. Maybe that's more likely. I don't know. But it's certainly true that one thing grandstanders do is exaggerate, use hyperbole, excessive emotions to try to draw attention to themselves. You got you to stand out somehow. Yeah, I, I really like this thought. Uh, I, I just want to note, um, so some people have, uh, you know, looked at, at our stuff and, and they think, well, all grandstanding is, is hyperbole, right? So maybe it's even just part of the concept that you must be, uh, you know, e exaggerating um, some moral reaction or, or something like that uh, in order to be grandstanding. I don't think that you were suggesting this, Aaron, but, you know, just to nip this confusion in, in, in the bud, um, we think that's not right. Uh, and if you think about this, I mean, so take an example in the, you know, that we talk about in, in the book um, of Harvey Weinstein, you know, writing this letter about uh, how he respects women. He doesn't really say anything hyperbolic in the letter. He just says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go after Donald Trump. Now I'm going to go after uh, the NRA, um, you know, starting this foundation for women and, and so on and so forth. And all of this is, is, um, I think pretty transparently, and, and I think most people who've read this letter had the negative reaction that this is very transparent. Um, you know, it's it just a transparent ploy to get people to, to think better. But there's no hyperbole in it, uh, and yet it's it's still grandstanding because he's using um, his uh, his supposed moral commitments uh, in order to to look good, uh, in order to to raise a status or, or to repair his his public image. I liked Aaron's uh, idea that that hyperbole is the coin of the realm, but I agree it's it's not just hyperbole, and, and a lot of this had me thinking about fandom. So we do have a kind of a new world of fandom and conventions, and and being a fan of certain genres or certain properties, Star Wars, Pokemon, whatever. And I think you see something like grandstanding, but it's not moral talk when you're trying to prove that you're the 
biggest fan of something. Uh, um, and it also reminded me of a few years ago, I read a book called Confederates in the Attic, which part of that book gets into the Civil War reenactor subculture, which is basically cosplaying for Civil War reenactors kind of, but like they are deeply interested in one-upping each other on who is the most extreme Civil War reenactor. So like, so there's, if you, you have to wear, you know, wool clothing in, in July and August, cause that's what the, the, the actual soldiers were. If you break a foot, you should march on it. Cause that's what you would have had to do in the war. Those are the hardcore people. Um, so maybe all we're really seeing here is just the expected outcome where we've seen in other things that are not political or moral, but the expected outcome of grouping together better that we're able to do now, um, which is related to what, a previous question, but I, but I think it's bigger than just politics. Yeah, you can bet if there's a if if in some some social circle uh, or community there's a desirable trait, uh, you can pretty much make a sure bet that people will try to outdo each other to exemplify or express that trait. Um, I mean, so you can think of like there's a kind of like intellectual grandstanding, you know, bragging about you know, you've probably been at dinner with a know-it-all, you know, and it's just, it's just really exhausting and annoying people who, you know, at dinner brag about how much money they make, you know, if you grew if you, people who grew up in religious backgrounds, there's a lot of spiritual sort of religious grandstanding. Um, and so you're at, I, I, I think this is, you know, you're right. This is just grist for our mill that there are these basic fundamental human desires. Um, and it turns out that morality is no different. I mean, it, one of our frustrations is that people seem to think that they have a very, well, we, we would say a very naive view about morality, about moral talk, that like people are like real selfish in like lots of other areas. So this is maybe grist for the libertarians mill, right? So, you know, people say like people are too selfish to like give to charity and do things on their own. They need the government to come in and like do these things. So people are really shelf, you know, selfish. But then they have this view that like when, when we're discussing morality, like all that goes away. Like, like, like all of our desires to, to promote ourselves and protect ourselves, like all those things go away. And like, it's some sort of like magic moral realm where people are just talking about their sincere, morally held beliefs out of morally pure motives. And we just think that's, you know, that's just naive. I mean, that's just not, it's just not a realistic way to understand what people are doing. I mean, ideally that would be the case, but it's pretty clear that what's going on. I mean, I mean, no one really thinks that someone deserves a death threat for like a minor internet faux pas. I mean, that's not, you can't really think that that's like, like these people are like really trying to figure out the moral truth here. That's just, that just can't be what's going on. So yeah, I mean, if humans are sort of like a mixed bag, morally speaking, maybe best case scenario, we're all sort of a mixed bag. We should absolutely expect in, in context where we're discussing morality and politics for people to engage in it for motives that are not, you know, all that laudable. Yeah. I, I like this thought a lot and, and this comparison a lot, Trevor. Um, I mean, so, you know, we, we read a bunch of social psychology for, for this book. And one of the things that emerges so clearly uh, is that people are just so desperate to, to belong. Uh, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to you is, is to just have no, no social group. I, I say being very alone in, in West Texas. So, I mean, you know, why, why do people, uh, um, you know, all, all have to have all of the, the Funko pop toys to like prove <laughs> they're the biggest dork, right? Yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel so attacked right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't go to Brandon's house. Um, yeah. I mean, fan culture is pretty poisonous. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this, there's this great, I think this might be my favorite thing that, that we found for the book is uh, this thing called the black sheep effect. Um, so what the literature says basically is like the worst thing that you can be um, is an unreliable member of your group. So if you, you know, you're like a civil war reenactor, he's like not really into like, you know, like I saw that guy wear, wearing like a normal belt. Once he's wearing, he's thing, wearing Nikes. You know. Yeah. On, on right. the battlefield. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I know you'd be kicked um, out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So like, so people of course think the best of like the very, you know, strongly committed members of their group. Um, they can see something that's at least like principled about, you know, the out group or, or like, you know, strongly in the out group. And then like, you know, the people who are kind of in the out group or they work with you sometimes it's like, okay, well, you know, at least they're, they're useful, you know? 
Um, but then the people who are not really, you know, all the way in your group, like what a jerk, like they're traitors. What side is he on? Right. Like, what does he think he's doing? You know, like he only has one Funko pop, right? (laughs) Like, like, you know, think of how, think of like John McCain is, is a good figure for seeing this. Like he probably had higher status, um, at most points in in his career in the democratic party than, than in the Republican party, uh, because he was kind of the black sheep of, of the Republican party. Um, so, you know, I think people kind of know this, they, they know they don't want to be, um, seen as, as sort of like someone people can't count on. Um, and so they, they kind of overdo it, um, with morality, just like they do with, with fandom or, or being a member of a political party. You guys dedicate a entire chapter to grandstanding in politics and, you know, while we may point out that there's there's grandstanding in non-politic in the non-political spheres whether that's fandom or civil war reenactment or whatever else it does seem i bet that if you asked people you know where they see the most grandstanding or name the biggest grandstanders it's going to be either in politics or grandstanding about politics and i wondered about that relationship and and kind of the the line of causation or the direction of causation that do we have do we have a tendency to grandstand more about political issues or is it that the issues that we tend to grandstand a lot about become politicized um so tyler cowan maybe this is what you're thinking of tyler cowan who many of your listeners are probably familiar with had this oh yeah he's been on the show. um oh yeah he's terrific uh, i've learned so much from him um, he had this nice post about um, child abuse. So why why isn't child abuse uh, more of a political issue? Um, well, I mean, so one thing is like kids don't vote, but you know, maybe that, that's all what QAnon is about, though. So is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that a lot, is a, lot, a, lot a going disturbing on. Yeah, a lot, lot uh, going on. But that is yes, yeah. okay. But we take we take um, we take your point. Yes. Well, you know, so people so people don't really. It's not like a live political issue and people don't really grandstand about it that much. I mean, I'm sure if you go to like, I'm sure there are Facebook like child abuse communities and, and you know, people will, will, you know, try, try to outdo each other there. Um, but, you know, most, most politicians don't really talk about it. Um, so I, I guess this points to, you know, your, your direction of causation question. I guess I tend to think um, we probably, we go where the status is, right? And there's not much status to be gained from bashing child molesters. Uh, there's, there's probably more status to be gained, um, uh, more, more reputation to be made for, um, going after, uh, people who are on the wrong side of some hot button political issue. Now, I guess you could, um, you know, invent a wedge issue and so everything has to be new, um, eventually, uh, but it's probably, it's probably more work, uh, to find something, uh, new, to, to grandstand uh, about in politics, uh, at least, uh, than, than it is to just pick uh, an existing issue and, and get a good good line in there. I suspect that I suspect that um, people grandstand um, m- much more frequently about wedge issues. Uh, so when there's a, when there's another side of considerable size who disagrees with you about it. Um, and so the the idea there is there is an outgroup. There's a clear, definable outgroup that you can show that you're better than. And there's also a power struggle, right? There's a there's a there's a kind of um, struggle within a group, you know, for power of that group. And um, and so I my suspicion, and this would have to be this is an, obviously an empirical question, is that 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 the the more something is a wedge issue, the more something is something that is, that could be a talking point, say between political parties, you're going to find more grandstanding. And that just has to do with the incentives, it just has to do with the mechanisms that explain why people engage in status seeking behavior. I do think another issue, this sort of goes to Robert Talese's work on um, overdoing democracy. I, I do think that politics has just taken over more areas of our life. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, there's just lots of areas of life that that I think were not as politicized as they are now. I mean, what kind of food you eat, what kind of car you drive, um, how big of a house you have, where plastic you plastic straws, what, plastic <laughs> straws, what what neighbor what neighborhood you live in, what 
what did the, what did the neighborhood that you lived in used to look like 50 years ago? I mean, there's just lots of moralized. I think I think it's pretty clear that lots of things have been moralized and politicized that weren't previously. And so there's a kind of creeping, creeping political, you know, politicization of these things that. So we have to protect them, right? We have to, you know. Once you make, you know, how big your yard is or what neighborhood you live in a political issue, well, you have to be prepared to defend it. Um, so, so I think, I think it's a really complicated, uh, there's got to be some really complicated story here. I don't have a clear answer to this question, to Aaron's really nice question, but I think, I think those two things that you grandstand more about wedge issues and that, that, that there has been a clear increasing politicizing of lots of areas of life. So I think that a lot of people listening to this or reading your book would would say, yeah, man, those people grandstand all the time. And it's very hard to tell someone that they're grandstanding and have them listen to you. It's kind of like telling someone that they're brainwashed. Like no one ever says, I am brainwashed, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, it's, it's only an epithet. Um, yeah. And so – so in this, like, you know, the, one of the lessons should be, you know, look look in the mirror first. Uh, th- think about those times that you might have been grandstanding, of which I, I can remember personally many times. Uh, I, I think I've I have personally better, so. never done it. Especially <laughs> not on Twitter. And I'm disgusted. And I'm personally disgusted and offended that I'm on the line with some people who have. I just want to. Yeah, I am that. more disgusted and offended. Are you kidding oh, me? Okay. Well, yeah. well, you know, I want to take another line on this. And I think if Aaron cared more about morality, he would have erred more on the side of grandstanding. Standing. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. <laughs> you don't care enough about morality, Aaron. Which is right. so, but I mean, yeah. So you know, diagnose yourself. Uh, but it seems limited utility to diagnose others with this mm-hmm. with this problem. Mm-hmm. Kind of goes yeah. back to Aaron's first question. Yeah, yeah. So we we have so the last chapter in the book is what to do about grandstanding, and this is in many ways the hardest chapter to write. Um, I mean, I think Justin and I, by disposition, are not all that inclined to tell people uh, exactly how to live their lives or what to do. And I also think giving people advice about grandstanding is fraught with all kinds of partisan, uh, you know, traps. I mean, people take our advice as like, well, you're picking on the left or picking on the right. So here's what we do say in that last chapter very briefly. I mean, we argue that you're absolutely right that calling people out for grandstanding is probably not a good idea. I think for most people, their their first response when they hear about grandstanding is like, all right, tell me who's doing it and I'm going to call them out. And we think that for several reasons, this is just not the right way to do um, – this is not the right way to, uh, you know, to address grandstanding. One, it's really hard to tell when someone's doing it. And so two, it's unfair to make a public accusation when you're just not sure. And then three, it's just practically it's, – it's just not going to – it's not workable practically. I mean I accuse you of grandstanding and then like – you accuse me of grandstanding and then we get an argument about what's in my heart and what's in your heart. And the first time, you know, that, that, that's just not a way to have a productive conversation. So, so what do we do? Well, we draw on some work here from Christina Bicchieri, philosopher at University of Pennsylvania. And, and the idea is that we need to change norms. So we have this bad norm that's taken hold in some, some online circles, political circles, where grandstanding is common and it's rewarded. And we want to get to a new norm where grandstanding is uncommon. It's sort of embarrassing to engage in and people aren't inclined to do it. They're able to restrain themselves in public discourse. So how do we change those norms? And and it's really a a three-step process. I mean, one, one step is to, you know, become convinced ourselves that grandstanding is wrong and then set a good example in public discourse. So, Instead of engaging in public discourse and making it about me, make it about the evidence, make it about the data, make it about, you know, um, things that <laughs> things that don't have to do with raising my status. Um, so one thing is to set a good example, admit when you're wrong, be harder on others, excuse me, be harder on ourselves than we are on others. I think most of us, we tend to be very gentle with ourselves and forgiving of ourselves and we're very hard on others. And I think... I think morality demands a kind of division of labor where we're we're easy on others, or at least we're harder on, on ourselves than we are than others. And then also, you know, just redirect our desire for recognition in other ways. I mean, I think this is a very basic human desire, the desire for status to impress other people. The problem is when we engage in moral discourse to satisfy those desires, we end up with cheap talk and we cause polarization and lots of interpersonal conflict. 
one thing we say in the book is just to redirect that desire. So if you really, you know, if you really want clout for doing something morally good, well, maybe go out to a soup kitchen or something and like do something actually good for people and then take a photo of it and post it on Twitter. I mean, you might be getting some recognition for that, but at least in the process, you will, you will be doing something good. Um, and then the last thing we, you know, we argue in that chapter is that, you know, we do need to try to figure out some social mechanism for disincentivizing grandstanding. And, and what we settle on is to try to make grandstanding embarrassing. So when there's something that you think might be grandstanding or is likely grandstanding, just ignore it. Um, don't reward people for their selfless, you know, stands that everyone praises them for being so brave. I mean, imagine writing a long Facebook post about how, you know, this little thing like, you know, offends your, offends your, your moral sensibilities. And then like no one, like no one replies, no one likes it. That's for most of us embarrassing. And so it's a, it's like, it's a more subtle way of changing norms without going around and scolding people for grandstanding. We should stress, you know, one other thing about this though, and that is we don't want anyone to take this book uh, as, as sending the message that you just shouldn't engage in moral talk. Right? The point of this book is that moral talk is really important uh, and it's a resource we need to protect, but it's also a resource we need to use. Uh, so, you know, we have this test that we apply at a couple of points in the book. And, and I think, uh, you know, people can, can use this um, day to day. And that is, you know, when you're about to contribute something to public moral discourse, ask yourself, um, if it turned out that no one was actually impressed with me, uh, because of the, the thing I'm about to say, so, so that I like got nothing uh, out, of, out of saying this, would I be disappointed? Uh, and if the answer is, is yes, uh, then we think you should probably be worried, right? You, you should worry that, uh, that you're engaging in grandstanding. Uh, but if you think, you know, uh, upon reflection that, you know, no, that this is just worth saying, period. And, you know, even if nobody notices, nobody cares uh, about me at all, I should say it, then you should say it because you're not grandstanding. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.